0: Let's pray. Um, This is the collect for the second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Scripture to be written for our instruction. Grant that we would so hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting salvation you have given in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It's the end of the book of James. How do you feel? I think for most of us, whenever we read James, it feels like we're being put through the ringer. You know, we finish the book and we put our Bibles down just feeling a bit battered and bruised. James is just so intensely and relentlessly practical. It's overwhelming. I wonder whether that describes you a little bit. And at least in part, James, that's his whole point. He wants to rescue us from a kind of empty, unproductive, dead faith. His burden from beginning to end is to show that real living faith issues in works. That what we really believe is most clearly displayed in how we actually live. And so we can do a bit of a whirlwind tour through the book of James and see how that's played out. So in chapter 1, James said, if we believe that God is really good and really sovereign in control of everything, then we'll be able to persevere joyfully even in the face of fierce trials he said later in chapter 1, if we believe that God's word is the perfect law that brings freedom, then we will look intently into it. We'll trust that the word has the power to transform us and not our own strength and efforts. And in chapter 2, if we believe that the gospel is about God's undeserved favor to all people without distinction, then we won't show favoritism amongst each other in the church. We'll treat all people with dignity and respect. In fact, we'll go even further than that, lowering ourselves in order to lift up the least among us. In chapter 3, if we believe that our words have immense power to create and destroy, then we'll be very careful with how we speak. And we'll speak words that build others up rather than tear them down. And if we believe that life is a mist at the end of chapter 4, then we won't live every day as if it's all under our control. Instead, we'll submit our plans to the Lord. And in chapter 5, if we believe that all earthly possessions and wealth is ultimately fading away, we won't hoard it up for ourselves. Instead, we'll generously, gladly give it away. See, James is showing us, chapter after chapter, that true faith is not about making empty claims. True faith bears visible fruit in the works we do and in the words we say. And so it's entirely fitting that James ends his letter with an exhortation to pray. And here's the main point for today. The primary work of faith is the work of prayer the most profound words of faith are the words that we speak in prayer James's teaching comes to a climax in this call to pray and i hope we'll see today that it also brings us comfort here in these final verses is a balm for our battered and bruised souls because the reason why we feel battered and bruised is that James has just systematically undermined any shred of self-reliance that we might be clinging on to. We can't usher in the kingdom of God. We can't produce the righteousness that God desires. We can't tame our tongues. We can't change the world. We can barely change ourselves. James shows us on our own, we can do nothing. But here in these final verses, James says emphatically, you are not on your own. Because in prayer, we tap into the power of the almighty, all good, all sovereign God. James wants us to be humbled. And I hope that you're, you're there at the end of this letter. Because humble Christians are Christians who pray. And praying Christians will be lifted up by the Lord. And so if you've been wondering, how on earth am I going to live out this immensely relentless practical teaching that James has put before us? Well, here's the answer. You start in prayer. And James outlines here us four uh, four different scenarios, situations we find us in, in trouble, in happiness, in sickness, and in sin. I hope you can see that covers pretty much all of us, at least some of the time, all of the time. And in each case, we'll see that James offers prayer as kind of the antidote to the temptations that those situations bring. And each one, we're kind of going to go back through the letter of James, see how that temptation plays out and how prayer is the answer. Great, let's go. James chapter five, verses... We'll just read the first few words. Here we go. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. It seems as if trouble is the context of the Christians that James is writing to. Remember, that's where the letter began. Instructions about how to respond in times of trial. And much of James's letter is concerned with the particular temptations that arise in times of trial and trouble. So the prevailing wisdom when you face opposition might be to fight fire with fire, to fire back with angry words, with hostile, even physical violence. Or the prevailing wisdom might be, if you can't beat them, join them. That seems to be the issue in chapter 2, that these persecuted Christians are kind of sucking up to the rich and powerful oppressors. They're trying to carry favour with those who might be able to do something for them, to relieve the pressure from them, rather than looking out for those that need us to do something for them. And so as James teaches about human anger in chapter one and showing favoritism in chapter two, he's actually addressing the same temptation that arises in times of trial. It's the temptation to take matters into our own hands. But James wants us to see that the prevailing wisdom, the wisdom of this world, it just doesn't work. It's unfruitful. It's unproductive. Chapter 1, verse 20, he said human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. In chapter 2, he shows that favoritism is entirely unfitting for people who know the gospel. But James goes even further than that. Such wisdom, the wisdom of this world, is actually demonic. How the devil loves to stoke the anger of Christians, to inflame the zeal of Christians, to fuel our anger and indignation that we and the people around us would be consumed. The devil loves us to be friends with this world because in the end we'll find that we've made God our enemy. Now, you can imagine that the response from these persecuted Christians would be, well, what are you saying, James? And we meant to sit here and do Nothing. I mean, our lives are under threat here. Don't don't we have to do something? You might have that same question yourself. This year I've given two different sermons on the issue of politics. Don't know how that happened. And the uncomfortable but unavoidable emphasis of the New Testament in the face of oppressive, powerful, authoritarian governments is submit, submit. And several people in response to those sermons said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? Are we just meant to sit here and do nothing? As the government does whatever they want, don't we have to do something? And James says, yes, absolutely. But what he does is he takes anger and violence and hostility and outrage and indignation. He clears all of that off the table and he offers us something so much better. Here's what you do. Pray. And if, like me, you kind of catch that thought come into your head, I wish I could do more than pray, well, can I gently suggest to myself and to you that that thought reveals we really don't understand how powerful prayer really is. Because when we pray, we're tapping into the power of the King of all kings the Lord of Lords, the name that is above every name, the one who is seated on the throne, ruling over every power and authority and dominion. See, when we pray, we take matters out of our hands and we put them in his hands, the hands that bend all of history towards his good and perfect purposes. That's more than doing something. That's everything, right? And so the prayer of the Christian in trouble is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the midst of trials, we pray that Jesus will guide us away from the hellish wisdom of anger and violence and favoritism and into the wisdom that comes down from heaven above. James says this wisdom is first of all pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And we do pray that God would deliver us. That's okay. We can ask for the trials to end, for the trouble to finish. And in the meantime, we persevere in the patient, peacemaking path of the Lord Jesus. And so if any one of us is in trouble, let's pray. James continues, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. One of my favorite prayers is from the old Anglican Compline service. Compline are the prayers that you say just before you go to bed at the end of the night. And so you have evening prayer and then you have Compline. It's a lot of prayer if you do the whole thing. And we'll pray a kind of version of this prayer together at the end of the sermon, but just listen to it now. Keep watch, dear Lord... With those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, all for your love's sake. Amen. Such a beautiful prayer, isn't it? I think the most striking line is right there at the end. Shield the joyous. Would you ever think to pray that on your own? Those three words reflect a profound insight that there are particular temptations that arise in times of happiness and ease and joy and peace. In times of trouble, we might be tempted to think that um, God is unable to help us and that we need to take matters into our own hands. In times of our comfort, however, we can tend to think that Our hands are all we need. Look at all we've done. We don't need God anymore. We've got this under control. That's the attitude of the people in James 4 who make their business plans. Yeah, we'll just go here, and we'll make money, it'll be fine. We don't need to worry about God. It's the attitude that causes the rich to hoard their wealth and ignore the needs of the poor. See, when you can choose between toast and cereal and maybe even a mango for breakfast. If you can pack a full lunch or buy it at the shops when you go to work. If you can go out to a restaurant for a three-course meal, or like a nine-course degustation. When that's your life, it's easy to think that we don't need to ask God for our daily bread. See, James wants to shield us from this temptation to forget God and all the arrogance and self-centeredness that that forgetfulness breeds. And the shield he offers us is songs of praise. Because it's as we sing songs of praise that we remind ourselves that everything we have is not built up from the ground by our own hands, but it all comes from above, from the hands of our Father in heaven. And when our hearts are filled with praise, we won't hoard what we have. Rather, we'll use it to honor God, the one who has given us everything, every breath, every dollar in our bank account, every minute of our time. And we won't spend what we have on our own comfort and excess, but we'll put it into the service of the needs of people around us because we'll know it was never ours to begin with. The very act of praise, it takes us out of the centre and makes room for love of God and love of our neighbours. But there's another way in which songs of praise can shield us in our joy. Because if you think back to the beginning of chapter 5, James told us there that our wealth rots and our clothes get eaten by moths and silver and gold, they corrode. And so if we centre our happiness on these possessions that are so fleeting, we'll eventually find that our satisfaction will rot as well. That our happiness will be eaten away, that our joy will be corroded. We'll find we'll have no stuff left and we'll have no joy either. And so James wants us to find our joy in God himself because he knows the deepest happiness is found when we know the giver rather than just the gifts. The theologian Henry Nguyen described joy as the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, not sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war or even death, nothing can take that love away. Which is why all through this letter, James has been pointing us to the infinite, unchanging, personal God. Because he is the only one who can give us the infinite, unconditional love that our hearts desire. Remember chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When we sing songs of praise, lesser delights dissolve and we start to get a taste of heavenly things. And what happens is that under the surface of our lives, however however easy or arduous they may be, there starts to become this kind of deep source of joy, a constant current of love that never runs dry. So if anyone's happy, pray. Sing songs of praise. James continues, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Now, I hope you notice there that James gives a little bit more kind of detail in this point. He's not just telling us to pray. He's giving us a bit of a how-to guide and a little kind of Bible reading top tip, whenever you notice a difference like that it's worth kind of pulling on that thread. Why does James give us more detail here? It'll be fruitful to ask those sorts of questions and so thanks for asking, why does James give this detail? Well I think it's because sickness again ushers in particular temptations and the particular temptation that sickness can bring I think is the temptation to despair whether our sickness is kind of chronic illness or whether it's something more short and severe, whether it's our physical health or our mental health, when we're confronted with the mortality of our bodies, with the frailty of our minds, when our own weakness presses so heavily upon us, it's just easy to conclude that God's left us all alone, that we're on our own, that he has abandoned us. Now the Bible's very honest about the fact that us humans are very slow, we're quite dim and especially when times are hard, when we're in a place of weakness, it can be very hard for the truth to sink into our hearts. Have you ever had that experience of just feeling so weak and someone tells you the truth that God is with you but it just bounces off, doesn't really take root? And this happens in all sorts of ways. And so throughout the Bible, we see God gives us physical, tangible reminders of the truth. In salvation, we're not just told that we're forgiven and a part of God's family. We're given the gift of baptism. And the water is a powerful reminder of what God has done for us. And whenever we share the Lord's Supper together, we're not just told that God feeds us and nourishes us but we have a physical word given to us, the body and the blood of Christ in the bread and the wine. And I think something similar is happening here. For the elders of the church, they represent Christ to the people. And it's almost like the sick person can imagine themselves as one of those people who comes to Jesus in the Gospels. They bring their sickness and their suffering to him. And as the elders pray over the people... Maybe lay hands on them. The sick person can feel the healing touch of Jesus. And everywhere in scripture, the pouring out of oil is a symbol of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so as you feel the kind of oil dripping down your head, it's this tangible reminder that the Spirit has filled your heart. I think there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't do this sort of thing in our church today. Because who of us is not prone to despair? Don't we all need real, physical, tangible reminders that God doesn't abandon us? That Christ is with us by the power of his Spirit? That in trouble and in happiness and especially in sickness, that Jesus never leaves his people. He never lets us go. The teaching of James 5 is not rooted in outdated superstition. It's rooted in deep gospel conviction. The conviction that we are frail and we not only need to know the truth in our heads, but we need to feel it in our hearts. And the conviction that healing is possible because the Lord is present and prayer is powerful. But do notice that James goes beyond the possibility of just physical healing because he also goes on to say that God will raise the sick person up. James wants us to ask for more than God to simply show up and make us better. This kind of prayer has the audacity that the God of the universe would stoop down to us, not only to heal us, but to care for us not only to make our life easier, but to make our lives more glorious as he makes us more like the Lord Jesus. That actually, even if our sickness ends in death, that God will raise us up to new life with him. So as one writer says, we need to bring wholeness to our souls, even through the brokenness of our bodies which is why I think James makes the connection he does between sickness and sin in the second half of verse 15. So let's listen again. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, I think the Bible is quite clear that there's no necessary connection between specific sickness and specific sin. So, if you're in a place of sickness now and you're worried that maybe your sin has brought this upon yourself, that's not necessarily the case. I think the classic example is Jesus and his disciples see the blind man and the disciples say, well, whose fault is it Jesus? Did he sin? Was it his parents' sin? And Jesus says, wrong question. That's not what's going on here. And yet, there is a connection between sickness and sin in a very general sense. We live in a world of sickness because we live in a world of sin. If humanity had never turned away from God, sickness wouldn't have entered into the world. And so whenever we're confronted with sickness, we're also confronted with our fallenness. And though there's not necessarily a connection between sin and specific sicknesses, there are examples in the Bible where sin does lead to sickness. So think of the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. They're afflicted by plagues because of their sin. It's not just an Old Testament thing, in case you're wondering that. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, he says that some of the Corinthians have even died because of their lack of concern for the poor and their favoritism at the Lord's table. The most striking example of this is David's testimony in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, he said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Have you ever had that experience? I've had that experience. Probably don't even realize it, that some kind of unconfessed sin just bears so heavily upon you. And when God finally draws confession out of you and you tell someone about your sin and they remind you of the truth of the gospel, that weight just lifts from your shoulders. (laughs) That's what was happening. See, it's not the case all the time, or even most of the time, but at least sometimes, God will use sickness to humble stubbornness to kind of bring us low, that we'd stop relying upon ourselves and put all of our trust in him. And whenever God does that, whenever his hand is heavy upon us, it's only so that same hand can then lift us up even higher than we thought we were before. And so whatever the case, whatever situation we are in, whenever we face sickness of any kind, it invites us to reflect on the reality of our sin and to humbly confess it before him in the knowledge that he freely and graciously and generously forgives through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just as we're not abandoned by God in our sickness, we're not abandoned in our sin. Just as God draws near to the sick, he draws near to sinners. And just as the presence of God is displayed and felt in the reality of Christian community, so is the favor of God. See, that's why James encourages us to confess our sin to one another. Not just that we would kind of feel really bad about what we've done. No, the the exact opposite, so that we would really feel the forgiveness that comes through the Lord Jesus. As we hear our brothers and sisters say to us, Jesus has forgiven you. In the face of our sin, when, when we're confronted with our own failure, it can be hard to know real assurance that God has really poured his grace out upon us. And so God gives us that gift of Christian community that we would speak the gospel to one another in our weakness. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the Christ in our own heart is often weaker than the Christ in the word of our brother. He says, our own heart can be uncertain, but our sisters or our brothers is sure. 1 John 1.7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Fellowship with one another and the cleansing blood of Jesus go hand in hand. And a church that is a place of kind of regular, humble confession becomes a place of life and peace and safety and joy in the Lord. Whether that's our own sin as we kind of courageously bring it out into the light or whether it's the sin of others as we lovingly pursue those who are wandering from the truth. Interestingly, this week we received the results back from the NCLS survey that we did. Remember we did that earlier in the year, we kind of answer a bunch of questions about the life of our church. Yesterday I saw a striking statistic, only 6% of us said we would certainly follow up someone that we knew was drifting away from church. seems low, don't you think? Maybe we need to hear this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And if you hear that and you go, well, how do I do that? Where do I start? How do you turn a sinner from their ways? How do you bring life from death? I hope you can guess what James's answer might be. In trouble, in happiness, in sickness, in the face of sin, whether it's ours or someone else's, then pray, 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 pray. Then finally, to drive the message home, James gives a final illustration. It's about Elijah. Listen to verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I reckon that feels a bit (laughs) random, don't you? Why Elijah? Of all of the people in the Old Testament, why does he pick him as this example of prayer? Top Bible reading tip, when you ask that sort of question, pull on the thread, it will bear fruit. And so we go back into 1 Kings and we think about the story of Elijah and we see all of these kind of strange resonances with the message of James. Because Elijah too, he lived in a time when oppressive, wicked kings were kind of persecuting the faithful in Israel. And in the face of that opposition, Elijah kind of got a bit stroppy. At one point, he spit the dummy and went out into the desert. He was feeling very sorry for himself. But when he was out in the wilderness, he heard the word of the Lord. I'm still here, God says. I'm present amongst my people. God said, I'm preserving a faithful remnant. There are still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God said, my promises are sure and I will bring them to pass. And James too, remember, tells us in times of trial to listen to the word of the Lord, that his promises are still sure and still powerful to bring about his purposes. And think about how Elijah cared for the widow in Zarephath, that in the time of drought, he gave to her a jar of flour that never ran out and some oil that never ran dry. And then that woman's son was sick and Elijah prayed for him and he was made well. And James too, remember, has told us to care for widows and orphans in their distress. It's very interesting as well, a story about sickness and oil. You can think about that later by yourself. But then most pointedly, it was Elijah who prayed for drought and then later prayed for rain. And God sent his rain down from heaven and there was life again in the land. And remember that James has been calling us to wait upon the Lord for a harvest of righteousness, that we would keep sowing seeds of peace and like farmers that we'd patiently wait for God to send the early and the late rains. And here today we see what that patient waiting really looks like. It looks like persistent prayer. We pray and we pray and we pray and then we wait for God to send the rain. And James's key point is that Elijah was a human being just as we are. You can read Elijah's story and go, wow, he's some super duper believer. He's in some category all of his own. And James says, no, Elijah, ordinary man who had taken hold of the extraordinary power of prayer. See, it'd be easy, I think, to get sidetracked in this passage by questions about, you know, does God still do miracles today? Does the gift of healing still kind of exist in this era of the church? But I think that would be to miss the point. Because as Christians, we believe in miraculous deliverances. We believe in supernatural joy and praise. We believe in powerful healing and the forgiveness of sins and unlikely conversions as people turn back to the Lord. And we believe in all of those things because we believe in the power of prayer. That prayer is powerful and effective because the Lord in heaven above is powerful and at work in the world. The stunning fact that James wants us to grasp is that our prayers which often seem so feeble, sometimes even futile, that when we pray to our Father in heaven, we actually change the future. That our prayers bring about true and good and lasting gospel fruit. And the more we believe that, the more we will pray, because prayer is the primary work of faith, and the most profound words of faith are the words that we speak when we pray. So, if anyone's in trouble, let them pray. If anyone is sick, let them pray. If anyone's happy, then let's pray. In the face of our sin, let's get together and confess our sins to one another and pray. There you go, long sermon, simple point, pray. We pray, God sends the rain. That's how it works. I reckon what we should do is just roll straight into open prayer. We've got some really clear categories and instructions from God's Word tonight. And feel free to stand up where you are and speak in a louder voice than you think you need to, or you can come up to the front here. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, would you please fill your people now with faith that we would courageously and boldly pray to you. And would you please hear us and answer us in Jesus' name. Amen.